The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 29th, 2019. On this week's show, the Athletics' Marcus Thompson will be here to talk about the choppy, complainy start to the Rockets-Warriors series and Kevin Durant's latest absurd scoring binge. ESPN's Mina Kimes will also join us to emit a primal scream about the New York Giants selection of quarterback Daniel Jones with the number six pick in the 2019 NFL Draft. And documentary filmmaker Jonathan Hawk will come on the show for a conversation about his latest movie, The Dominican Dream, on basketball prodigy Felipe Lopez. It's part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio, it's my co-host, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. How was school Scrabble? Awesome, as always. Best weekend of the year. Very exciting. Who won? Uh, two kids, uh, eighth grader and a seventh grader, won the middle school division. Kid from Connecticut, kid from Toronto, teammates. Uh, they kind of rocked. They played really well. Totally deserving. Back-to-back champs. They repeated. Yeah, they're going to trademark that. <laughs> Scrabble Pete. <laughs> we'll work on that. Daughter Chloe did not win the high school division, but acquitted herself pretty well. She played an awesome game on the live stream. You, of course, were tuned into the live stream, Josh, with millions of others. I saw the Twitter thread about it. Yeah, good There luck. were lots of bingos. Good life. They bingoed six times, but her opponent played this word, Calisaya, C-A-L-I-S-A-Y-A. That is freaking sick. Nigel Richards was applauding. Yes, he was. So, so let me just ask you, Josh, are you going on tour? I am. Book, so the, the Queen? The, the, the tour begins on May 21st for my book, uh, The Queen. Um, and yeah, it would be great to see Hang Up fans and listeners out in the world as I am uh, talking about this book I've been working on for a long time. So there's an event May 21st in Brooklyn, then May 22nd back here in D.C., then L.A. on May 29th, San Francisco May 30th, Alameda, California May 31st, and then Chicago June 10th. I'm going to schedule something for New Orleans, but that's not on the books yet. Um, where, I will where, put, where I will can put I get the, the information on how to come to these events? Yeah, I'll put the, the information on our show page. How about that? Does that sound fair? Sure. I bet you also have a someplace on the internet that is dedicated to promoting your book. Will it be there too? Twitter account. Twitter yeah. account. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do that. Okay. Follow me on, on Twitter.com. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday afternoon in Oakland, the Warriors beat the Rockets 104-100 in Game 1 of the NBA Finals Western Conference Semifinals Edition. As often happens, an insanely competitive game between the world's greatest athletes turned into a debate about officiating. Joining us now to talk about it is Marcus Thompson, the Athletics Bay Area columnist. He's the author of KD, Kevin Durant's Relentless Pursuit to Be the Greatest, which is coming out in a couple weeks. How's it going, Marcus? 
I'm still like a little dizzy from the spin room after the game last night. You should have seen that thing. It was like an episode of the West Wing. It was crazy. Well, and then things got even spinnier. It was on The Athletic, actually. Sam Amick had a piece in which the like Rockets year worth of opposition research was leaked. Came out. It was um, leaked. I, I was looking for Axelrod. I'm telling you, it was like <laughs> they, it was crazy. They were like talking to media members and like both sides were like trying to get, get the story out or, or diminish the story or they should put them all like, in yeah. one room, Marcus, like, and they should have like, a, they should be holding like a big placard that's got no the name question. of the spinner on it. No question. And then we have one team is red, one team is blue. I'm telling you, Aaron Sorkin is missing out on the NBA playoffs. It's great. It's crazy how like you know you're just in it. You're, you're in it. We're working. We're getting quotes, and then the the news about like James Harden quote because I was in the Warriors locker room, and he was still on the podium and had, and it had already made it to the Warriors locker room. James Harden said he needs a fair shot, and everybody's laughing like, "Are you serious?" And <laughs> it, it was so surreal, actually. All right, let's step back for one moment. So the debate here is that the Rockets were bitching about the fact that the Warriors kept getting under their three-point shooters and the refs weren't calling fouls, that they need a landing area. You need a landing area, area. people. Um, And uh, according to D'Antoni, Mike D'Antoni, the Rockets coach after the game, the refs like admitted to him at halftime that they were screwing up the calls, that there were four fouls that they had missed in the first time. Who knows if the refs actually said that, but that's what D'Antoni claimed. And then the um, the real controversy was at the very end when the Rockets are down three, Harden shoots a three, Draymond Green is guarding him. No foul is called. It looked to me, Marcus, and I am like, I'm not anti-Harden as a human. I think he's like an impressive, an extremely impressive player. I'm not a huge fan of his foul drawing and attempts to draw fouls. And so my response is color bad a little bit, but it looked to me like he kicked Draymond Green, like he flailed his legs out. Like, what did it look like to you? And and what are you made of all this this chatter? I'm just so disappointed in James Harden. Like, it really, it kind of hurts me because that dude is so good. And this is how his legacy is. Like, this is what he wants to do. Like, they're down three. And if you make a three right here, it's tied and you're going to overtime. And instead of taking a real three-pointer, like a, a three-pointer that he could make, this dude is like shooting the basketball like my seven-year-old. Like, what are you doing trying to draw a foul in that situation? Damian Lillard didn't do that, right? He went for a shot that he worked on, he practiced. This dude is trying to create an eight-foot landing space. It's just, he's way too good for this. I just want him to believe in himself. Like, that's what it, that's what it comes down to. Believe in yourself, James Harden. You don't need a referee. You are good enough to do this. Well, like, be James like, Harden. You sound like you're talking to your seven-year-old who you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Marcus, you got to give, give him an inspirational speech. But, Stefan, like, you don't even, need this. Stefan, like even from a strategic standpoint, it doesn't make sense because if you're the Rockets and you have this like oppo that suggests that the refs don't make this call. Right. Why even, are you, going why are you doing it anyway? So that you can get more oppo? I mean, that yes. seems to be the only They're like explanation. sacrificing games to win an argument. They're like, <laughs> see, here you go again. It's it's ridiculous. And, and here's the funny part, though, right? Like, And this is why I like respect Steph Curry so much. Because here's this little light-skinned, six-foot-three dude from the suburban home, you know, 
the the Christian dude. I mean, you don't get more quote unquote soft, right, in the NBA. And here's a guy who uh, he would never do that. There is no way he would get up there and say, "Man, can y'all give me a chance with some foul calls?" And James Harden is doing it. Like I just that for the life of me, you can't do that. Now I'm not. I'm not even opposed to trying to work the refs. Like you do that in the game, whatever happens on the court, you got it. But you don't go up there begging for for fouls. Like you just can't do it. It's especially when your when your game is bent on you hustling the refs. This is like the drug dealer complaining that the police officer won't arrest the dude who stole his drugs. It's like, dude, you're a criminal. Like you can't <laughs> you can't now go to the authorities complaining. Like all you do is hustle the refs. So you just got to take it when it don't work out and come back the next time. A lot of the spin on the other side has been that the Rockets are overplaying their hand here, particularly for the reasons you just mentioned, that Harden has a reputation for doing this. The counter argument is the strict constructionists for NBA rules saying that, look, this is a rule that the NBA has implemented to protect players from landing on opponents. Zaza Pachulia. The Zaza rule um, of the Warriors who did this and injured Kawhi Leonard, um, of, what was it, two or three years ago two now. Two years ago. Um, on the other hand, have I gone back to <laughs> my other hand? So I've got three hands now. Um, on the other hand, look, if, if, if James Harden is allowed to fall back and needs a landing zone the size of a kiddie pool, there's no way to defend a shot, period, that he takes. So it's the exploitation Absolutely. of the rules, the strict constructionists versus the refs who are allowed to interpret the rules based on intent and what they see. I think it's all Zaza's fault is what Stefan's saying. Basically. <laughs> I mean, just blame it all on Zaza. Look, there's no question that the refereeing is inconsistent. Like it always is. It, that that's the way it is. That's part of it's part of basketball. Like for me, the way I see the re- officiating is just like it's like the weather in football. Like sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's great. Like nobody's like, yo, we would have won the Super Bowl if it wasn't snowing. Like whatever the weather is, you just deal with it and you try to win. Like you don't change the weather. So. Like, it's always inconsistent. It's always hit or miss. You just never know. Some refs have attitudes and get personal and some don't. Some, like, they, they want young officials. That, that's their stance. Like, yeah. these old officials, they don't apply the rules like the young ones. Give us some young ones. Like, yeah, they're, they're the Anthony Scalia's of the about? NBA yeah. rule book. Yeah. What are you talking about? Whatever the refs is, it's your job to figure out how they're calling it and adjust. That's well, the way it is. The Rockets, the Rockets are arguing that um, it, it, the weather – No, that the weather is always the same. It's, the, yeah. it's whatever the Warriors want the weather to be. But I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm tired of this. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about – I just woke up and I'm tired of it. Like. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Kevin Durant, um, a uh, subject of an upcoming book by Marcus Thompson. Let's listen to what um, Lou Williams and Patrick Beverly of the Clippers had to say after game six of the first round – playoff series we tried everything <laughs> like, right. so we we had several different coverages for katie and they didn't work <laughs> dude, yeah like like even the game that he that he came out he was like i'm kevin durant y'all know who i am that's a bold statement to make when you're about to go see some guys that's extremely competitive and he came out that game and he said I can really shoot over these guys, and he did it. So it wasn't lack of effort on our part. He's an all-world professional, 
proved exactly who people think he is, and he did it. And you tilt your hat off to a guy like that. No, uh, no lack of uh, respect there. No lack of uh, intensity in the Rockets uh, Warriors game one as well. They had PJ Tucker on him, and KD still had thirty five points. Marcus, he's the, we're witnessing the transition of power, right? This is what it is. Like we don't know who's gonna sit on King's Landing, but we know who has the crown for the NBA and it's gotta feel really good for Kevin Durant. Like he's waited for this for a long time. Like, you know, what was it? Uh, Sherman clump 35 years of wanting and wanting, right? Like he's been, he's been waiting for this moment for years. Like he's been working at it. And finally it's kind of undisputed now, like even on his own team, they know that he's the best player in basketball. And to have like two players like that just basically crown him publicly with no LeBron inside at all because he's not even in the playoffs. Like this is what this is what he's worked for for most of his life now. It's pretty cool, actually. What and what I also thought was pretty cool was the way that the Clippers sort of really matter of factly were talking about Durant's ability, about his transcendence as an athlete. I mean, you really don't often hear that sort of really candid honest colloquial praise um that was really impressive it was like paul george talking about damian lillard except the exact opposite, opposite. <laughs> right, exactly right. right i mean you know what it reminded me of it was like remember back, back in the day uh when larry bird at a press conference i think it was after the hookshot game and larry bird is like speechless he's like man i don't know what to say magic is just the best i've ever seen yeah <laughs> it was just like you just don't hear that right you don't hear other players just just concede, right? Like, that dude is better than me. You just hear I mean, the everyone. honesty, right? You just hear <laughs> yeah, the honesty. unbelievable. Yeah. Especially, like, you know you know, Patrick Beverly, like, he does all he can on the court, like, to, to squeeze every ounce of who he is and what talent he has and try to create environments where, like, the better players are not as good. And he's like, look, I gave it all I got. You know he gave it all he had, right? That's his whole, his whole existence is... Is doing everything possible, and he's still like, "Yeah, I did everything I could. It, was, it didn't matter. He's Kevin Durant." So Durant's like that, averaging it's refreshing. So Durant's averaging forty points over his last five games. He had fifty in Game Six against the Clippers, and while all of this is happening, there are stories being written saying that Kevin Durant—it's a lock, it's a fait accompli—that he's going to be playing for the New York Knicks next year. Why on earth would this even be in his mind? He's found like this is like. I mean, forget the personalities, forget everything else. Basketball? This, how could anyone find a craft, a better situation for a player of Durant's ability? His teammates, who are also great in future Hall of Famers, are deferring to him in the most crucial moment. That's, that's why I don't think it's like a done deal. Even though, trust me, behind the scenes, from what everybody's saying, it's a done deal. Like, everybody you talk to who knows anything is like, oh yeah, he's gone, right? But that's why I don't think it's a done deal because in the end, does he actually sign another contract and walk away from this? And I think this is why he was leaving in the first place because he wasn't getting this. Like it wasn't. It was Steph Curry's team, right? It was about like how he was fitting in and it was strength of numbers and he had to kind of blend in. But now that strength of numbers stuff is dead. It's like KD save us, right? <laughs> and, and, and Steph is like, yeah, man, I don't care. Like let's win. And that means you run the offense. It means you run the offense. They're chanting MVP for him. Like, he's kind of getting it all now. 
So for him to walk away now would be nuts. It would be crazy, especially to go to the Knicks. All right. So as as you'll recall, the Rockets were up three two on the Warriors last year. Katie actually didn't play that great in the first half of that series, and and he's the reason that the Warriors ended up winning this series. Um, we, we've got Game Two coming up in Oakland on Tuesday. The Rockets are pissed. We'll see how the refs respond. Um, Katie had six turnovers, I believe, in game one. Curry and Thompson's ankles are a question. And this series is super competitive and intense. And I think Chris Paul and James Harden really don't want to lose. And so I'm not, like, writing the series off yet. I think that um, it's going to be great and is going to be the best series in these playoffs. Marcus, if the Rockets do come back, how are they going to do it? They got to make a bunch of threes. Like, we saw that. You know, they got off to a slow start, 0 for 8, like 1 for 14. And then they got hot. Like, that's 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 going to be it. And then the Warriors are going to turn the ball over. Like, 20 turnovers kind of gave them their window. I think they're playing good defense, Houston. Like, they're, they're taking away the threes. They're doing their switching thing. And they're, like, relying on Kevin Durant going one-on-one. He's got to have a cold night. They just need to steal one at Oracle. They missed their chance. Game one. If they get game two, it's a different series. And the but Warriors they, have very little playable depth in this series. And if they don't. one of the top five guys, if Andre Iguodala gets hurt again like he did last year, then the the, the Warriors are in trouble. One injury to any 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 key player, and the Warriors are in trouble. Like, if it's Kevon Looney, they're in trouble. Marcus Thompson is the Athletics Bay Area columnist. He's also the author of KD, Kevin Durant's Relentless Pursuit to be the greatest. I would say that that pursuit is going pretty damn well for KD right now. The book's out May 14th. Marcus, thanks. Pretty good, right? Uh, <laughs> my timing is impeccable. Let's do it. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we get to our conversation with Mina Kimes about the NFL draft, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, The Athletic's Marcus Thompson will be back. And we will be talking about Damian Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers, who I think was having the most fun of any player in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Kevin Durant was great. Not sure he was having as much fun as Damian Lillard. We'll talk about Lillard. uh, And to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The Arizona Cardinals' decision to use the number one overall pick in the 2019 NFL Draft on Kyler Murray, a five foot ten quarterback 
who until recently was planning to ditch football for baseball, is one of the most interesting moves in the modern history of the gridiron. And yet, all I want to talk about is what the New York Giants did five picks later. Here's what it sounded like on ESPN's On the Clock online draft show. Quarterback. Let's go. Daniel Jones. (laughs) What are you doing? I just want to take a second. Yo, these beans are good as hell. (laughs) Hold on. Mina Time. First person ever. (laughs) As you might have been able to tell, those loud noises came in response to the Giants drafting Duke quarterback Daniel Jones. Joining us now to discuss that pick is ESPN's senior. What are you doing? correspondent Mina Kimes. Have you recovered, Mina? Uh, you know, I want to point out that I wasn't the first person to scream, what are you doing? And what you can't see when you listen to that audio is the reason I wasn't the first person to scream that is I had stuffed a piece of bread into my mouth to stop <laughs> myself from uttering profanities because we were live. I'm, I'm doing good. And, and when you put it in context like that, uh, given the historic nature of the Kyler pick, uh, because, you know, he's the first quarterback that height to ever be drafted in the first round. It is kind of amusing that no one's really was talking about that throughout the draft. Mina, I just want to let you know that you're perfectly free to utter the expletives that you would have uttered if you hadn't had a piece of bread in your mouth on this podcast. Okay. Well, I'll hear what you have to say about Daniel Jones and we'll see how it goes. Was the, uh, the, you know, the shouting and the, what people also can't see is Mina kind of collapsing like James Brown. Disappearing uh, <laughs> from view. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, was that motivated by just your shock that the Giants did that or your sense that Daniel Jones is not very good and does not deserve that exalted number six pick status? Uh, I'm going to go with the multiple choice all of the above <laughs> there. So there were rumors uh, leading up to day one that – Dave Gettleman, the GM of the Giants, was going to take Daniel Jones. I thought he – so I want to say 60% of me thought he was trolling us because Gettleman has already developed a bit of a contentious relationship with the media, in particular the analytics nerds like myself. You might remember last year he did a – he pantomimed a typing motion to mock the uh, nerds who cover football. (laughs) Nerds are always (laughs) typing. (laughs) Thus setting up a battle royale. Um, And and then he goes with the most – like when the rumors came out, I thought, well, this is the least analytics-y pick you can come up with, right? Like Daniel Jones, in many ways, when he was when people tried to outline his strengths, his positives going into the draft, it was like a parody of what old school football guys like. He's tall. He has bloodlines, which is one of the creepiest words we use when we talk about sports. Um, he was coached by David Cluck, Cutcliffe, the famous QB guru, worked with the Mannings. He was smart, and you know. There was a big part of me thought that thought it was just like a trolling thing. Like, there's no way because, uh, you know, we don't know any. We have a very hard time predicting which rookie quarterbacks will actually succeed. At, at, much like NFL teams have a very hard time. The hit rate is very low. Uh, all we can do is look at what these players have accomplished in college so far. And Daniel Jones' yards per attempt, uh, his completion percentage, his passer rating, especially against actual good teams like Miami and Clemson, uh, were pretty bad. I'm going to quote both of them. Pat Shermer, the coach, and GM Dave Gettleman of the Giants. I loved him on film. 
Dave Gettleman said, I absolutely was in full bloom love. <laughs> he also said he wasn't willing to wait to pick Jones later in the first round. I was not willing to risk it. The kid is really talented, a really talented football player. And then Pat Shermer, you can't just look at his raw numbers, Mina, and say, he didn't say Mina, this guy can do it. He can't do it. There's, a re- there's reasons why a ball is complete or incomplete. I really wouldn't share with you what that, why that is, but I thought he was very productive. <laughs> there's like a secret that sometimes of, of why balls get caught, like maybe because a wide receiver well, like, the has secret is better that, hands the or The secret not? is that Duke sucked. And he was playing with inferior yeah. uh, teammates, and yeah, that that's the that's the, the case. Intangibles and the and the the six foot five ness with the hair part on the side of someone. No, no, no. So the case the case player. for Daniel Jones, as Mina started to yeah. say, is that a we have no idea yes. which quarterbacks are going to be be good. B he did have a bad team at Duke. He was always under pressure. He had bad receivers, mm-hmm. um, and so. This is a case where, <laughs> again, like you've got to put throw the stats out the window and you've got to evaluate this guy. I think legitimately you have to evaluate him based on, you know, what the scouts say and intangibles, which seems kind of scary. Yeah, well, you he, the case for Daniel Jones is the flip side of the case against Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins. Both of those players put up incredible statistics and very limited sample size, by the way. You know, they both started only a year, but they did it in these incredible offenses surrounded by weapons. A lot of their teammates got drafted this weekend. Um, Meanwhile, as you outlined on the other side, you can say, well, Daniel Jones was playing with a terrible team, bad receivers, bad offensive line. So you have to argue, well, maybe his statistics don't actually reflect his ability. It was the same case you would have made last year for Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson, the uh, two quarterbacks who last, well, Josh Allen went before Josh Rosen, but really last year there was a lot of folks defending them or arguing for those guys uh, saying, well, you know, they were, you got to watch the tape, the statistics, the completion percentage was low, but it doesn't really reflect what they're capable of. The difference is Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, both had things that they could do really, really well that made them special. Josh Allen, who I was not very high on prospect. Yes, he throws the ball like ungodly far. Daniel Jones does not. Lamar Jackson runs like Michael Vick. We had not seen a guy with that kind of two-way ability. Daniel Jones is actually pretty athletic, but nowhere near a Jackson or a Murray. So I think that's my sort of objection to him is, yes, his team was bad, which definitely caused a dip in his numbers, but there really isn't anything we saw that made me think, wow, this kid could be special. But I think what also compounded your screaming, Mina, was that it was the Giants that did this, that they have had such a bad embarrassing run of of performance. Have we not mentioned the, the Odell Beckham trade yet? We have not mentioned the Odell Beckham trade yet. Um, that the Giants are now a laughing stock, so this made us all want to laugh more about them. They gave away the best player maybe in their franchise history for not a lot. What? Josh is making faces. Mina, do you disagree? Odell, Lawrence, Taylor, Beckham. Yeah, go well, ahead. All right. Go well, ahead. We're offensive <laughs> player. Sorry. Um, Fran Tarkenton. Um they gave away one of the best players in their franchise history for not a lot. And they have been routinely mocked, roundly mocked for the last six, eight, ten months. And they've got a 38-year-old quarterback in Eli Manning who's not very effective. Yeah, I think when you look at everything the Giants have, you have to look at everything they've done over the last two years to put it fully in perspective. Um, my colleague Big Bill Barnwell tweeted on the first day of the draft, the Giants traded Damon Snacks Harrison, who's this amazing defensive tackle, Eli Apple, cornerback, 
let Landon Collins leave, traded Odell to get like inferior replacements for all of them. Okay. And the Dolphins, I think, are a good example of a team that is undeniably rebuilding. They got rid of a lot of their good players. They have something like $300 billion in cap space next season. They know they're going to be bad, although the addition of Rosen throws an interesting option into that, but I, which I like because it's a low-risk option. The Giants are frustrating because they seem to not know that they're bad, right? Like the, Dave Gettleman and company, they seem to believe that they're contenders. They went out and they paid Golden Tate inexplicably he's been saying Eli's our guy he could start for another three years so there's this lack of intention now where's the bread that was where's the bread give me some bread what are you doing I think what frustrates people about the Giants so much you guys it's it's not that necessarily they're rebuilding or whatever It's, it's there's a lack of intentionality there's this like feeling that they don't really have a plan or a unifying sort of theory behind a lot of their decisions. And that's what's so frustrating to observers. I want to talk about how race factors into this, because I think it's really interesting on two levels. Number one, you had Murray going number one. He's a a black quarterback um, Mm -hmm. and also a short quarterback. And these are, um, you know, categories of quarterback that have traditionally not gone number one in the draft. So there's kind of a really fascinating move there to get away from traditional prejudices. On the other hand, I think a lot of why this move seems so bizarre and laughable in a lot of ways is that you have a guy, Dwayne Haskins, who is black, who's considered by pretty much everyone except for the people that we've named so far in the segment to be better and have a better resume than Daniel Jones. He falls and ends up going number 15 to Washington. Um, you know, Mina, there's video of Dwayne Haskins laughing when yeah. Daniel Jones gets picked. And there is something, too, I think, what you said about, um, you know, a child's drawing of a quarterback, that Daniel Jones, quote unquote, looks like a quarterback. And I think a lot of why that is is because he's like a tall white dude. And so I, I wonder if for you, that was part of the reason that you thought this was kind of inexplicable um, and, and weird that, um, that Jones got picked. Having written about this topic before and writing about last year uh, when I read about Lamar Jackson a bit and I guess observing it simply as a fan of the NFL and the NFL draft over for, for my entire life, um, I think the way race influences quarterbacks and quarterback discussion is how we, and by we, I, I'm not just meaning the media, but the way we talk about quarterbacks is absolutely influenced by race. Um, and and, I, and I'm sure, I believe also the way we talk about them reflects reality, the way that they're perceived. And you can see that with Haskins and Jones and sort of the conversation around them. I mean, studies have shown that black quarterbacks are more likely to be described in terms of their athletic abilities and white quarterbacks are more likely to be described as reading the field well or being cerebral. Dwayne Haskins is not a freak athlete by any stretch of the imagination. He's not even very good at throwing off the run, which is one of my negatives for him. Uh, What he does do very well is reads the field. My colleague Dan Orlowski has done some great film breakdowns showing how good he is at going through his progressions, looking off safeties, that kind of thing. Daniel Jones, meanwhile, you know, as people have looked to describe his strengths, his negatives, to me, actually, he's athleticism. He's more athletic than Haskins and is actually pretty pretty good at running with the football. Um, what I didn't see in the games that I watched, I didn't watch all the Duke games, was a great decision maker. I saw a quarterback who was not tasked with running a very complicated offense, who was throwing off of single reads a lot. 
So it, it, it is funny to me to watch suddenly the conversation be like, oh, he's a cerebral guy, and because it, it's, it doesn't actually reflect reality, and I do believe it is probably influenced by race. How do you feel about now being on record as a Daniel Jones hater? And you are going to be the reason when he's a a, a superstar. You will have inspired that. How oh, does he's, he's going to mention Mina Kimes in, in his Hall of Fame accept, do, acceptance oh, speech. Man. Uh, I joked after day one that this was going to be my Tony Kornheiser Darko is going to be better than LeBron moment <laughs> if Daniel Jones wrecks the league. I will say my reaction was the consensus among. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> your defense? Yes. My, my hope is that if he ends up being excellent, which is totally within the realm of possibility, that I'm just uh, grouped into a large gaggle of gas bags being wrong. They'll play like a montage. Like when Daniel Jones wins his eighth Super Bowl, there'll be a montage of idiots uh, saying he's going to be bad and laughing, and I'll be in that montage. That's well, my hope. One stupid moment. It yeah. was it was like that uh, moment in Being John Malkovich where all of the old people <laughs> climb into his head. That was you. You were just possessed by everyone in America. I'm intrigued, and I want to just switch the conversation a little bit here, to the way that everyone media fans react to quarterbacks being drafted, period. The obsession with sort of evaluating whether, you know, Jarrett Stidham of Auburn, whom the Patriots <laughs> took in the seventh round, is going to be Tom Brady's successor, is fascinating to me. The Panthers took a guy, Will Greer, from West Virginia in the third round. Should Cam Newton be worried? I mean, football teams need to have multiple players at each position on their rosters. Nobody's saying that Cam Newton should be worried about Will Greer. Where did you read that? Cam Newton gets hurt a lot. They need to take Will Greer. Um, but everyone, it feels like the scrutiny on quarterbacks is always so high. And that's understandable. Of course, they are the most prominent players. But it's fascinating to me. There's just so much emotional capital invested into the selection of, of a quarterback that is far disproportionate than the likelihood of them having an immediate impact on their teams or the league in general. Well, there's nothing that NFL fans love more than underrating quarterbacks they've never seen, or overrating, <laughs> pardon me, quarterbacks they've never seen right. play football. So you guys remember when Geno was, uh, pardon me, when Eli Manning was benched for Geno Smith, uh, Giants fans lost their minds, right? There was this enormous backlash. It wasn't because they still believed Eli Manning was good. It's because it was Geno. If they had gone from Eli to a young quarterback, a Daniel Jones, even somebody who had done absolutely nothing in the league, I guarantee you that fan base would have been thrilled because there's nothing more exciting uh, to NFL fans than the unknown. And that's why every year when we draft these quarterbacks, whether it's a Stidham or a Will Greer or you know a Haskins Jones or Murray, fan bases go nuts because it's like it suddenly raises the prospect that the quarterback of the future might be on their roster, even if they have no idea how good he is actually is. It's not disproportionate. Stefan, the only way to succeed in the NFL is to have a great quarterback. Obviously, you're going to get excited when your team drafts a young quarterback. And also the salary cap implications. If you have a great quarterback on a rookie deal, then it's like yes. instant Super Bowl, baby. Jared Stidham, we're going to Super Bowl. Get rid of Brady. Get him out of there. <laughs> the Patriots finally have a chance to succeed. Mina Kimes, what a uh, pleasure to have you on the program. And everybody should check out Mina's podcast that she does with uh, Lenny, America's favorite dog. Mina, uh, what, can, what can we expect on the Mina Kimes podcast with Lenny? 
Uh, you can expect a, a lot less screaming than I did during the weekend of the draft and a lot more analysis, I hope. <laughs> and more dogs. Uh, Mina, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Felipe Lopez was such a high school basketball phenomenon in the early 1990s that he was profiled in The New Yorker by Susan Orlean. He was so good that sneaker impresario Sonny Vaccaro advised him to accept an offer to go pro in Spain after his junior year. Before LeBron James was the chosen one, Lopez leaped over the Statue of Liberty on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was the number one prospect in the country. Allen Iverson was number two. Felipe Lopez is it. You see, just four years ago, this young man came to this country from the Dominican Republic. Today, he is riding a one-way ticket to the top. His senior year, Felipe Lopez transferred himself from New York City to America. This kid is so good, he gets the very unfair label of being the next Michael Jordan. Unfair or not, Felipe Lopez has that current label. Can't help it. Brothers got it going on. Dozens of great basketball players who have come out of the metropolitan New York area. Who is the best? Maybe kid who's still in high school. By my senior year, I was embraced, truly embraced, by the American media. In a very national scale. Oh, yeah, we have a Spanish kid that he's doing it big. That was George Michael of George Michael's Sports Machine, Sonny Vaccaro, Stuart Scott, Dick Schapp, and Felipe Lopez in Jonathan Hawk's new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, The Dominican Dream. The film debuts on ESPN this Tuesday, April 30th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Welcome back to Hang Up and Listen, my friend. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. All right, before we get going, shout out to two images. From the clip we just played, Armin Katayan's early 90s raincoat, which appears to have been constructed from an entire parachute, and Stuart Scott standing next to a puff basketball hoop on the set of ESPN2 Sports Smash. Excellent classic footage, John. Vintage. You know, uh, sometimes when you do a little research and, and dig a little bit, you, you just find that golden nugget. And it's when we saw Armin Katayan's trench coat, we knew we had a film. <laughs> I, this is in many ways a conventional sports biography, John, the phenom who never achieved his early promise. But of course, what makes Felipe Lopez's story significant is that he was, as Susan Orlean says in the film, a unicorn. He was a phenom unlike anyone before him, an immigrant from a place where baseball was king, living in a city where the demographics were rapidly changing. What made you want to make a movie about Felipe Lopez? Well, the, the story itself is great and, and captivating uh, all on its own. But the reason I wanted to do the documentary was because in 1906, my grandmother, as an infant, was brought to this country from Eastern Europe by her parents. And they settled around the corner from where Felipe Lopez's family settled in the South Bronx uh, 80 years later, exactly 80 years later. And... Uh, 
to me, uh, you know, Felipe's story is seen as a story of, of disappointment and even failure for, or seen that way by a lot of people. And to me, it's an incredible American immigrant success story that's just masquerading as, as a story of disappointment and failure. So if we were going to remake this as a, a movie that ends in a like conventional sports movie triumph, the final scene is when Felipe leads Rice High School, which had not won a New York City championship in a very long time. He leads them to victory. And then in this incredibly um, wonderful moment, Iconic gets hoisted moment. On, onto the rim, is sitting on the rim and gets handed a Dominican flag. We fade out. Uh, <laughs> credits roll. It's an unbelievable moment in a sports movie sense. And nobody who has that sort of thing happened to them in their life and in their basketball playing career could ever be considered a failure, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, could you imagine coming to a new country and within four years, uh, you're, you've become the symbol for 400,000 of your fellow countrymen uh, who have uh, been transplanted here, and then you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, when that was the thing, you know, the, the, the height of all heights in sports. And the, the secondary uh, message that I hope viewers wrestle with when they see the film is, is how we define success. I think that uh, success, the whole notion of success in sports has gotten so twisted that to, as Susan Orlean says in the film, that, that if you're not the best player who's ever done what you do in the history of the world, then you're a failure. That's crazy. And it is, it is crazy. And it's especially crazy because we're fed this by the same people that put Felipe on the pedestal are the ones who knocked them off. Yeah. The, the film is ultimately about expectations. It's about hype. It's about desire. It's about projection and it's about pressure. And, those things, including what you just said about the the notion that if you're not the best ever, you're a failure, those are part of the American experience, too, for better or worse. They are part of the culture we have created, especially around sports, but not exclusively around sports. Um, and in Lopez's case, his story was so captivating in high school. I mean, this was a a, a teenager who could speak no English when he got here. And by the time he's a junior in high school, he is a nationally celebrated athlete. I mean, that is crazy. And then he chooses not to go to Spain, despite Sonny Vaccaro's advice. He gets recruited by every college in the country, of course, decides to stay home and go to St. John's because of his family and because of the Dominican community. And he has a great freshman year, right? He is a he is a budding star, and they are packing St. John's gym with Dominican fans. He has a really good freshman year. He's uh, averages almost eighteen a game in the Big East when the Big East was really something filled with upperclassmen who were were great players, not just one and duns and and afterthoughts. And uh, you know, he he did do really well. The team only made the NIT, they didn't make the NCAAs, and, and therefore they were considered 
a disappointment and and he was scapegoated uh by you know by by people who felt he owed them uh a trip to the final four because they they predicted that he would do that for them and um i guess it 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 is the you know the flip side of the american dream is that you you come to a place the opportunity to uh come from nothing literally out of nowhere just to be dropped into the south bronx at age 13 and a half and then be one of the most famous basketball players in the country uh within 40 years so there's a lot of tension in the doc around whether he should have gone to the NBA. Sonny Vaccaro says he passed up the NBA twice. He also didn't go after his freshman year of college. And um, Sonny says you don't usually do that in life, pass up on an opportunity twice. Felipe's mom says those lions would have eaten my little boy alive. I think he's too skinny and he has to, has to eat. I think for him, going to college makes some sense. Um, he's still adjusting to life in the U.S. Physically, he wasn't, you know, super big and strong at that point. Um, but the obvious solution to this for me is if he gets paid under the table and gets to go to college, everybody wins. I'm not being facetious. And so I'm wondering, John, given that he was the hot commodity and all of recruiting and every school wanted him to go there. Did you ask him, do we know if he was offered money, if he took money? Yeah, he wasn't. Um, they, you know, no is the, the short answer. Um, he, uh, they, they weren't, it wouldn't have even known to ask, you know, um, they were so new and this was all so new to them. And, you know, someone was going to, they, they came here as a family so their kids could get an education. And now someone's offering their kid an education for free. And, you know, that was awesome for them. And uh, it, people took them to dinner, you know, all kinds of things like that. But, But this shouldn't be a conflict, right? Like, he's a guy who a lot of people were making money off of. He was making money for for these schools that were selling out games. And it shouldn't be like, oh, the only way that you can make money is to go to the NBA if you're maybe not ready for it. Like, this, I kept thinking, like, his family is, like, not, doesn't have very much money. They're they're immigrants. Like, they shouldn't be put in this position of having to make that decision. And this is a time when the conversation maybe could have been had. I mean, not to go back 25 years now, but, you know, Kevin Garnett was about to go from high school to the pros. This was a conversation that that was occurring. I mean, there had been books written already. Armin Katayan, I think, had already written one of those books about the corruption in college basketball. So the notion that someone like Felipe Lopez um, should have benefited in a tangible way for his family from going to college beyond getting the education that his family so desired shouldn't have been that alien. I mean, it was out there. It was on the table. It was, you know, but but the, the culture, again— that celebrated Felipe Lopez did him a disservice and did every other great star a disservice for decades and decades by not finding a way to ensure that they can get through this experience and be made whole in some way. 
my God, it's a it's a perfect example of how sinister the whole system really is. It's, uh, you know, oh, oh, the American dream. You get to come to the land of opportunity. And if you have talent and you work hard, you will succeed. Well, here's a guy. He comes here. He has extraordinary talent. He works extraordinarily hard. And now what he gets to do is for four years make money for a lot of other people. And then when uh, he, he's not as good as as people thought he was when when he was a child, he he gets to then, uh, you know, make less or, or of course he should have had the opportunity to be paid for his work. And uh, I mean, if anybody can look at the situation of an immigrant coming and working hard and generating enormous amounts of money to not be allowed to share that. His mother, who's a teacher for 25 years in the DR and has to work in a factory making clothes because she doesn't speak the language here, uh, that, that they don't get to capitalize on it. I mean, they're, they're, uh, thought of as very virtuous and of course they are very virtuous but as Susan Orlean said you know it was so it, it really was a reflection of their virtues as a family that they weren't in a rush to cash the Felipe check yeah. All right, let's compress Felipe Lopez's subsequent years here a little bit, John. Um, he had a terrible sophomore year. He didn't have a great junior year either. Um, so there was no opportunity at that point for him to, to go to the NBA. He would not have been drafted. Um, he graduates. And the scenes from graduation day in the Dominican Dream are really heartfelt and genuine. I mean, there is a genuine pride on the part of his family and on his part for having finished college. Um, also that senior year, Fran Fraschilla becomes the coach of St. John's. Felipe shoots 753s a day. He realizes that this really is his last chance, or at least that's how it's portrayed to him at age 21 to make it. Um, St. John's does make it to the tournament, the NCAs. They lose in the first round when Lopez misses a jumper at the buzzer. Um, he does get drafted by the Spurs. He's traded to Vancouver, the worst team in the NBA, where he doesn't play much. He ends up in Minnesota after going to Washington, a little bit of an itinerant situation. But then he starts playing really well, 18 points per game. He wrenches his knee in preseason, and his NBA career is over. He disappears. Felipe's story, if it ended in high school, it has the great ending of a happy sports story. If it ends when the injury ends his NBA career, just as he's on the verge of coming into his own in the NBA and signing a big free agent veterans contract, then it's the classic ending of a sad sports story. But Felipe's story doesn't end there. And we went to the DR and spent time with him around Christmas where Felipe Lopez is truly a prince in the greatest sense of the word prince, a prince of the people. You walk around Santiago de los Caballeros with Felipe and you are accompanying royalty in, and what he does, he personally hands out food to needy people. He doesn't hire a staff to do that. He drives around handing it to these people and the kids follow him around. Luke Carnesecca calls him the Pied Piper in the film. And, and that's really what he is. We were there. He served Christmas dinner to 1200 needy families uh, in the gym of the basketball club where uh, he's the president now. And um, it's, you know, Dikembe Mutombo, who works with him on uh, NBA Cares, NBA initiatives, 
calls him Saint Felipe. And, and it's true. I mean, in 1993, Susan Orlean called him the nicest person she's ever met. And Mutombo calls him Saint Felipe. And they are, they are both right. I mean, this man is the most righteous person you're ever going to meet. And his family believes, and I believe, that had he not gone to college for four years and developed as a social person, as a human being in those four years, let alone the classroom education, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that he would have become this person that is really his destiny to become, this humanitarian. Sonny Vaccaro, who's great in the film, um, says that this is a story about how America should be grateful for all the Felipe Lopez's who have come here. And that helps, I think, transform it from something that's more than a basketball story. I mean, look, this guy had a long career. He went on to play overseas for many, many years. He made money playing basketball. He's fine. He also transformed his family and his community. And as his mom, who's awesome in the movie, says he transformed two countries and he continues to do so, that we should view someone like Felipe Lopez as a bust is disgraceful. Yeah. And, you know, financially, he didn't really transform his family. Um, I guess he he helped to some degree, but his his brothers have a have a business in the Bronx uh, with construction and steel. His sister lives and works in Virginia and raises her her daughters as a single mom. And and her, uh, his parents continued to work till retirement age and um, in factories. And um, you know that's all they did. They came here and they worked and they you know made the world a little bit better. Uh, and it was great that Sonny acknowledge it because Sonny Vaccaro is the most, you know, cold, analytical money, take the money, take the money, it's give the kids the money. And, and he's right. But he's also right that this isn't about that. This is about uh, being an immigrant and making the world a better place. The movie is The Dominican Dream. It's an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. It debuts on ESPN this Tuesday, April 30th at 9 p.m. Eastern. You know what else we should mention, Stefan, is that Felipe Lopez was in the Slate New York office last week to do an interview with uh, his biggest fan, Mike Pesca. So that'll be uh, coming up on The Gist. If you um, like this conversation, if you like the, the doc, you should definitely check out Mike's interview with Felipe Lopez. Watch the movie. Listen to Pesca. What more could anyone ask for in life? John Hawk, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, guys. Now it is time for Afterballs. And we mentioned the Susan Orlean article in The New Yorker from 1993 about Felipe Lopez. And there was an interesting fact in that article that was not in the documentary. No, uh, no shade, John Hawk, but just noting that it was not mentioned that one of Felipe's teammates on the Rice Raiders was Scientific Map. And the funny thing, Stefan, about this is that Scientific Map, as Orlean noted in the uh, article, had a nickname that his teammates would call him, which was Science. <laughs> if your name's Scientific, you need a nickname, Science. So my natural question here is how did Scientific Map do in the name of the year contest, presuming that he was involved prominently? At the time, Josh, you think we would have overlooked Scientific Map? I think not. He was uh, he participated in the 1994 Name of the Year balloting, along with his brother Majestic Map. 
Okay, they so were both, they were both uh, in 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 the tournament that year. Uh, in the actual it's voting, like a Venus versus Serena. Situation. It really was scientific. Looks like he got two first place votes. Only out of six, it was a small group of voters <laughs> that year. Um, finished second. Majestic Matt finished fourth, but there was controversy. The winner that year was invalidated. It turned out it was a bogus name. Who was the winner? Momenchance Bitter Beetle. Okay. Turned out to be fake. We had been duped. <laughs> so Scientific Map actually was the 1994 name of the year. Scientific Map's uh, basketball career didn't really go anywhere, at least as far as I could tell. He went to Florida A&M for a couple of years, and then I wasn't able to find anything about that after. So I was wondering what, what happened to him. And now I know. What happened to him was that he was named belatedly the name of the year winner. Josh, why don't you go first this week since your after ball, I believe, flows right through from John's film and the name of our after balls this week. So what's your scientific map? All right. Back on the subject of Felipe Lopez. He was the number one high school player in the nation in 1994. The year after that, the consensus best player in the country was Kevin Garnett. As the documentary, The Dominican Dream, points out, the big difference between them, other than Kevin Garnett ultimately being a lot better at basketball than Felipe Lopez, is that Garnett set a trend by going pro straight out of high school. He was picked number five overall by the Timberwolves in 1995. The high school Garnett graduated from was Farragut Academy in Chicago, but he only went there for one year, his senior year. He grew up in South Carolina. Before transferring, he went to Malden High School in South Carolina. The event that instigated his departure from Malden happened in May 1994. A contemporaneous report in the Greenville News said a 17-year-old boy told the Malden Police Department that a group of 20 to 30 students were roaming a hallway and they assaulted him in an unprovoked attack. Garnett was one of five students, all black, charged with second-degree lynching and was released on $10,000 bond. The student who was allegedly attacked was white. The school's principal said the whole thing started because students were horsing around, but also said the incident may have been racially motivated. Um, as I said, the student was white uh, who was attacked. Allegedly, the students who were charged with lynching were black. According to that Greenville News article, the previous school year, there had been two separate events in which racial slurs were graffitied on the school, although there was no indication that any of the students involved in this, in either um, the attacky uh, or the attacker's uh, were involved in that. Um, but uh, anyhow, in 2003, the Washington Post did a piece on South Carolina's lynching law, reporting that it was the only one of four in the nation that is still routinely used. It was enacted to end the state's long history of white vigilante justice against blacks. The story continued, today in South Carolina, blacks are most often the ones charged with lynching, defined in the statute as any act of violence by two or more people against another, regardless of race. Though they make up just 30% of the state's population, blacks count for 63% of the lynching charges. Um, back to the incident itself, the reporting on what happened at Malden High School is really hazy. Years later, I found a report saying that Garnett wasn't involved in the incident at all, but got arrested anyway. Either way, he was placed in a pretrial intervention program wherein he was given community service and counseling, and the charges were ultimately dropped. Now, as far as how Garnett got to Chicago... 
He was playing on the all-star circuit in high school. He met a player there named Ronnie Fields. If you have not heard of Ronnie Fields, he has a whole other 30 for 30. He might actually be a 60 for 60. That's how crazy and and uh, interesting his story is. He is known as one of the greatest high school basketball players of all time, one of the most athletic players of all time, known for allegedly having a 50-inch vertical leap. And if you see the highlights of him, he did the jumping over a dude in-game dunk before Vince Carter did it on Frederick Weiss in the Olympics. Um, Fields never made the NBA. He got badly hurt in a car accident. Then he got charged with misdemeanor criminal sexual abuse. Um, But before any of that happened, Fields was this mega high school star. um, And Garnett moved to Chicago to team up with him, like in a high school super team situation. They they actually lost in the quarterfinals of the state playoffs uh, in Illinois, and they were only together for for one year. Um, But so, yeah, Garnett went to Chicago. He was maybe going to get expelled from his school in South Carolina. Um, Again, the reporting on this is kind of hazy, but the coach at Farragut Academy, William Wolf Nelson, said in a story, the media was every damn where, like he's OJ, his mom, this is talking about Garnett, his mom goes down to the jail and she didn't appreciate that the coach didn't try to step in there. The school was like, hey, this is not a matter for us. And the kid had to be scared to death. Um, Malden High School was in like a pretty, according to these stories, like a middle class community. Farragut Academy in Chicago was in like one of the tougher neighborhoods in Chicago. This is... um you know, one of these situations where every story about it includes the phrase, quote, gang infested. Um, according to the uh, story in the Greenville News that was published in 1995, Garnett's best friend from South Carolina moved with him to Chicago to help ease the transition. And that friend, whose name Bug Peter, said it was culture shock. We weren't used to that kind of environment. I moved back to Malden after a month. Basketball kept Kevin sane. Garnett said, the hood's real. Nothing's fake. Nothing's fun. If you have 10 Mexicans bothering you, throwing rocks and shooting guns, you think twice about trying to walk to school. I never want to go back to that. I learned a lot in the streets. Um, there's another story that I that I found that said that Garnett considered going to the University of South Carolina and was like serious about it, um, but he didn't end up going because of test score. He never got a qualifying test score, so he went to the NBA. I don't know if that's true uh, or not, but there was this sense that it, it's just a strange uh, confluence of events in a lot of different ways. Um, and uh, it's of the same era of the Felipe Lopez story and would also make for an interesting documentary, perhaps, Stefan. Who did Garnett go to Chicago with? His just mom. His, he went with he his, did family, go with yeah. his family. Yeah, it wasn't just his best, like him and his best friend on a yeah. on a field trip. They they all like moved out there, and it was yeah, it was like this odd kind of business decision, but also to get away from this school, but also to team up with Ronnie Fields. Um, there were there's a lot going on there. All right, Stefan, what is your scientific map? Tim Anderson of the White Sox triggered a baseball fracas a couple of weeks ago when he threw his bat after hitting a home run. Actually, the fracas was triggered after Royals reliever Brad Keller decided that he didn't like Anderson enjoying his home run, so he threw a baseball as hard as he could at Anderson's body. Bench is emptied, embraces were exchanged. Anderson, who is black, reportedly called Keller, who is white, 
and I'm quoting here, a weak-ass fucking, and then he used the N-word. Keller, Anderson, et al. were suspended. On Friday night, Anderson hit a walk-off three-run homer against Detroit and threw his bat once again. I knew I had to do it. It's different. I did it again, so I let the people know it wasn't a fluke. It was definitely a great moment. I agree with Tim Anderson. Throw your bats, batsmen. Enjoy, celebrate. Fuck you, pitchers. And baseball with your unwritten rules. Steal second, up seven runs, lay down a bunt to break up a no-hitter. If these rules are so important, Josh, why not write them down? Oh, because they're too stupid to write down. And they're not rules. They're just stupid. I have yet to read, though, a definitive history of bat flipping and the outrage over bat flipping. In Vice, Aaron Gordon in 2015 identified who he called patient zero of the bat flip outrage. That is the first pitcher to throw a tantrum over a player celebrating by throwing his bat. It was indeed a good one. Steve Klein of the Cardinals yelling at then-rookie Jimmy Rollins of the Phillies in 2001 as Rollins rounded the bases after an eighth-inning homer. That's fucking Little League shit. Klein said, if you're going to flip the bat, I'm going to flip your helmet next time. You're a rookie. You respect this game for a while. There's a code. He should know better than that. Rollins, who is black, flipped his bat some more and was lectured by his own teammate, the hard-nosed Scott Rowland, who is white. The Philadelphia Daily News reported in 2002 that Rowland not only admonished Rollins after the Klein bat flip, but again the next season after Rollins did it after homering against a former teammate, Eddie Oropesa, who punished Rollins by, of course, hitting Pat Burrell in the ribs four batters later. In today's game, leadership takes a different meaning, Roland said, from one or two guys to a group of veterans who respect the game and know how to play it. Jesus Christ. All right. Rollins, Jimmy Rollins, said he played in a way that was intended to pay tribute to Negro Leagues players with enthusiasm. He also wore his pants and socks high as a tribute to the Negro Leagues. They were characters. They entertained, and they had to, Rollins said. They understood that part. They played the game right. It didn't matter if you hit a home run, and you looked at it, put a little style into it. That's how it's supposed to be. How is that disrespectful? But Rollins was not the first bat flipper to piss off a pitcher. In 1998, J.T. Snow of the Giants quote, watched the ball's flight and then flipped his bat derisively to the side, end quote, after homering off of Philly's closer, Wayne Gomes. The next day, Gomes struck out Snow and then shooed Snow off the field. The next season, 1999, after Gomes celebrated after a couple of strikeouts, the Giants protested the Phillies failing to follow the unwritten rules. I just think it shows a lack of class, Jeff Kent said. It's very hard to keep track of who's on whose side. When we should it comes know to Wayne, Wayne Gomes is black and yeah. J.T. Snow is white. Yeah, there you go. But J.T. Snow also flipped his bat. So I'm not sure we can draw any racial conclusions here. Unsurprisingly, there's really no consistency with who gets pissed off over what. During the 1987 playoffs, the Cardinals complained, the Cardinals are always complaining, about the exuberant style of the Giants' Jeffrey one flap down Leonard. But then Cardinals journeyman Tom Lawless performed one of the most epic bat flips of all time after hitting a three-run home run in the World Series against the Twins. When the ball goes out three inches above the fence, you don't stand there and watch it, Kent Herbeck said. Guys who have got some time and hit some home runs, that's one thing. A Tom Lawless doing it 
is another. But bat flip beef, Josh goes back even further. Reggie Jackson flipped his bat regularly after home runs, but I couldn't find much in the way of complaint. I'm sure there was some. When Willie Mays Aikens of the Royals in 1979 flipped his bat, then ran a great circle route to first base that almost carried him into the Detroit on deck circle, several of his veteran teammates murmured prayers on his behalf. Mark Heisler of the LA Times wrote, I told him to kiss off. Aikens replied, I figured I could do what I want. If Reggie can do it, I can do it. A year before that, Ellis Valentine of the Expos flipped after a homer and the opposing pitcher, Charlie Williams, was not pleased. I'll face him again. Next time, maybe he'll have to watch me admire an out. No threat there, but it was implied, I think. Finally, way back in May 1968, Mike Shannon of the St. Louis Cardinals, those lovers of the right way to play the game, except when one of their players isn't playing the game the right way. Mike Shannon homered to left against the Giants. Mike flipped his bat after hitting the ball and then watched the ball leave the field. Neil Russo of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported, that's the kind of player I am, Shannon said. I make big money because I've been driving in big runs. He's a broadcaster, right? Cardinals broadcaster, Mike Shannon? Yes, later famous for saying, it's Mother's Day today, so to all the mothers out there, happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Among other Shannonisms, quote unquote. I hope he's a guy that on the air talks a lot about playing the game the right way, because he did not in May 1968. Glad that you're calling him out. Calling him out, Mike Shannon. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, people, guessing you might want even more hangup as noted earlier. Our bonus segment this week is special. So I was in the doghouse all the next day because I scared the whole family. But it was the most epic this is going down in Oakland history is one of the greatest shots ever, obviously, because it's one of the best shots in NBA history. But, man, that was for Oakland right there, for sure. Stefan and I talked to Marcus Thompson about Damian Lillard. We had a uh, very joyful time. We laughed. We laughed. We cried. Uh, it was better than cats. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>